Good evening. Good to have everybody tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for our gathering. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the freedom to worship. Thank you for uh, uh, the opportunity tonight to go through a section of history that's sad and ugly. And I pray that we would uh, come away with, uh, with conviction over it and uh, a little bit better than when we, when we came in, when we leave. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, um, if you're a Civil War buff, tonight's about the Civil War and the attitudes that surround uh, where the church fit into that. So um, uh, here we go. Ugly. Differences in the North and the South. Um, one at a time. This is a, we've separated at this point by the time the 1850s are here to two completely different countries, and, and almost literally. In the South, it was conservative. In the North, it was innovative. Innovative usually means liberal, but uh, we're into new things in the South. It's just conservative. Agricultural, community in the South. Industrial in the North. Paternalistic, fathers, individualistic in the North. In the South, aristocratic. In the North, egalitarian. Rural in the South, big city life in the North. In the South, they sought individual sanctification. In the North, sought societal sanctification. In the South, looked primarily to the Bible as the authority. In the North, looked primarily to reason as the authority. Um, so let's take a look. As we get in there, we've got a separation. I've just given you these just to show you a bit of a separation between the North and the South when we get there. There's, there more could be said, and this is a lot of history in an hour, so uh, uh, no way I can cover everything, but just to give you a view, and then we'll get where the church was on this. Southern rural values typically look like this. Thomas Jefferson said this, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God in the earth, the agricultural people, farmers, Aggies. The mobs of great cities add just so much to the support of pure government as soars to the strength of the human body. Note the sarcasm. I think our government will remain virtuous for many centuries as long as they are chiefly agricultural. When they get piled upon one another in large cities, as in Europe, they will become corrupt, as in Europe. So you see what Thomas Jefferson's idea for America was, remain agricultural. Smart as he was, that was his view and hope in Virginia. Northern values, a little bit different. Alexander Hamilton embodies this. In general, he says in the North, women and children are rendered more useful, and the latter more early useful by manufacturing establishments, meaning much younger. Of the number of persons employed in the cotton manufacturers of Great Britain, it is estimated that four-sevenths nearly are women and children, of whom the greatest proportion are children, and many of them at very tender ages. So out in the south, it's agriculture. In the north, you've got women and children working in factories, essentially. Uh, Benjamin Palmer, on the southern viewpoint, says this, The so-called free states of this country are working out their social problem under conditions peculiar to themselves. He's talking about the north. With a teeming population which the soil cannot support, with their wealth depending upon arts created by artificial wants, with an external friction between the grades of society, with their labor and capital grinding against one another, with labor cheapened and displaced by new mechanical inventions bursting more asunder the bonds of brotherhood. In other words, they're getting really advanced in the north. Amid these intricate perils, he says, we have ever given them our sympathy and prayers and have never sought to weaken the foundations of their social order. Our industry has been based upon agriculture. I should say our industry, meaning the South, has been based upon agriculture. To the North, we have cheerfully resigned all the profits arising from manufacture and commerce. So you see them going back and forth, North and South. We're good. You're not good. You're advanced. We're down home 
people in the South bringing, working from the ground. So the northern emphases on societal sanctification, you go up north, you look up north, this is what um, they emphasize and their social sanctification in the sense that they are growing or they're becoming greater people, um, evolving to a greater standard, if you will. Temperance, they were um, big on anti-prostitution in the temperance and you know your control of your, your behavior, anti-prostitution in the north, anti-gambling, Sabbath-keeping, anti-capital punishment and prison reform. Public, public education, women's rights, and abolition. So these are good things. It's not like the, the North was evil and the South good. Um, in fact, we're, opinions may go back and forth one way or the other if you don't already have an opinion. But these are the emphases on the societal sanctification in the North, typically called social Darwinism. So let's take a look. Our Bible study tonight is what does the Bible say about slavery? So this is going to be what the South will use to say the Bible says this, therefore it's right. And so you'll have Southerners being Bible-toting thumpers. Here's what the Bible says. You people don't believe it up here. We do down South. And they're going to try to use this to justify uh, slavery. Leviticus 25, 39 to 32, God tells Moses and he writes, If a countryman of yours, that means Israelites, one of your own fellow Israelites, if he becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, and as if he were a sojourner, he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. That is the, what, the 50th year. He shall then go out from you. He and his sons with him shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they are not to be sold in a slave trade. So you run out of money, you have nothing to do, you sell yourself to your brother in Israel, and you are that brother's servant in the sense that you work for him, you're not treated like a slave. Slaves were conquered peoples. They weren't racist. Slavery wasn't a racist thing then. They were conquered peoples. If you don't want to die, you either die or you'll serve us. We'll serve you. That was a typical slave back then. Continue in Leviticus 45, verses 44 and 46. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, that would be conquered peoples, you may acquire male and female slaves from the nations that are around you. You may even give them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves, as long as they weren't Israelites. So God has got rules for his people. You're not to enslave your own people, but they can sell themselves to you to work for you if they have no money. Conquered peoples are your slaves, but they're conquered peoples. It's not because they're black or another color because you're superior, it's because you didn't kill them in battle. In Exodus 21, 2, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. So if you buy one, for whatever reason one has been bought, you can only serve you for six years. On the seventh year, he is to go free. Exodus 21, 3 to 6, if he comes alone, be a Hebrew slave, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master. He shall go out alone. In other words, he comes in, he's a slave, and the master gives him a, a wife and they have children. When it's time for him to leave, she has to stay because she was given to him. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, 
and he shall serve him permanently. So he had an earring of sorts to prove that I belong to my master for life. This is who I want to be with. He loves his master, wants to be with his family that he made while in slavery. And this would have been, again, you've got God's rules for treatment of a person that's called a slave. It's in the Bible. Exodus 21.7, And if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. She's to be protected under the one master who's been sold, not to be moved around. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, 5, and 5 through 9, slaves, and the Greek word there is doulos. Sometimes you'll see a, um, a word for servant in the Bible, and it's uh, the word diakonos, where we get deacon. But here it's a slave, one who's been, been bought, one who's owned. Slaves, that is those of you who are owned by others, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh. That is the humanity that you've been bought by. And do so with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good things each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. In other words, if you are a slave, do your service unto your master as you're doing it unto Christ. It's that simple. He doesn't say, slaves, try to get out. This is an evil institution. Never is it spoken of as an evil institution because in the Bible, it's never assumed that you would kidnap people from another country and enslave them because of their race, as we did in England and the United States. Ephesians 6, 9 and Colossians 4, 1. And masters do the same thing to them. Give up threatening. Know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So you've got slaves, you act this way. Masters of slaves, watch out. Make sure you treat those slaves properly. Husbands, make sure you treat your wives properly. Children, make sure you treat your parents properly. There's a proper way of behavior within any realm of society that you're in. In Philemon 8, uh, Philemon is just one chapter, so you just list the verses. The Apostle Paul is writing to a man named Philemon. He knows Philemon. While Paul was in prison in Rome, he was... Um, visited by a young man named Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. And while Onesimus was with Paul, Paul converted him to Christ and said, oh, you need to go back to your master because you've run away. He owns you. So he sends Onesimus back to his master. And this is what he says to Philemon. Onesimus goes back. He's got the letter that Paul wrote in his hand. He left as an unbeliever. He's coming back to Philemon as a believer with Paul's letter. And Paul's letter says, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. I have sent him back to you in person, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, for perhaps he was, for this reason, parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, a beloved brother. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Onesimus, go back. You're a converted man. Philemon is a brother in Christ. Go back. He doesn't say this is an evil institution. Philemon never should have owned you. Leave and don't go back ever. Go back and submit to him as God would have you submit. That's what he tells him. And he tells Philemon, Philemon, receive him. And if he owes you anything, charge it to me. I'll pay it. Paul believes he's going to get out of jail. And he did. Or he went back and paid Philemon himself. And so this is the attitude in the Old Testament and the New Testament of slavery. There's a right way, or at least the way to have slaves is under the ordinance of God. There's nothing in there about if you go steal people from another country 
and find them and pull them against their will and put them on ships and send them to your homeland. Uh, there's nothing there because that's evil in and of itself. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 to 24, the Apostle Paul says, Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called, that is called to Christ, while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman, freedman. In other words, whether you're free from your master or not, you are free in Christ. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. If you can get your freedom, get it. But you don't need to go out of your way to get it. You are the Lord's freedman. And in Galatians 3, 26 to 29, Paul writes to the church in Galatia. He says, churches of Galatia. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor freeman. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now we know men and women are different. We know slaves and freedmen are, are, are different. We're all different. But in Christ, we're all one. And that's what he's saying. There is no one greater than another. A man's not greater than a woman. A, fr a freeman is not greater, <clears throat> excuse me, than a slave. And so this is what Galatians 3, 26 to 29 is teaching. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's offspring. Don't you love that? I mean, I'm a Gentile. I don't have any lineage to Abraham who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons. Those sons went off. They became the tribes of Israel. They're the tribes of Israel. I'm of the tribes of of the, the nations, the Gentiles. But in Christ, if I believe in Jesus Christ, who is a direct physical descendant of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, if I believe or you believe in Jesus Christ, the direct, direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are, spiritually speaking, Abraham's offspring. That, my friends, is awesome. Amen. Best news you hear all day. And then James says in chapter 5, 1 to 6, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For your miseries which are coming upon you. Behold the pay of the laborers. Not the, the slaves, but this is a different word. Not doulos, but the ergotos, those who work. And so he separates these people who are crying out. They're not being paid for their work. You're withholding that. Um, and I just put that one to, to uh, distinguish it from the, from the doulos. So note that the Bible has its teachings on slavery. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world, which is the context of Jesus and the scriptures. Aristotle says this, around 350 B.C. Seeing then that the state is made up of households, before speaking of the state, we must speak of the household. We should begin by examining everything in its fewest possible elements. The first and fewest parts of the family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. We have, therefore, to consider what each of these relations is and ought to be. A slave is a living possession. The slave belongs to his master. <clears throat> he continues, Hence we see what is the nature of a slave. He who is by nature not his own but another's man is by nature a slave. But is there anyone thus intended by nature to be a slave? There is no difficulty answering this question on the grounds of both reason and fact. For that some should rule and others should be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient, Aristotle says. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. Do you think Aristotle believed that all men are created equal? Do you? 
No, we're not, folks. Well, I mean... No, let me, let me say so you don't get in trouble. <laughs> I did not. I could not be a running back for the Dallas Cowboys. I'm sorry. I mean, a five foot seven man is not going to uh, run for the Dallas Cowboys or throw a football or anything like that. I don't have that ability. I wanted to. I conceived it, but I could not achieve it. I could not even make the Professional Golfer Association, even though I wanted to and worked hard. That is not what God made me to be. All men are not created equal. Not all can sing well. Not all are beautiful. Some are not quite so beautiful. That's a real nice way of saying they're ugly. Some have great intellect. Others don't. Some are born with Down syndrome. Some are born with other defects that we call handicaps that are not like others that are so gifted. We are not all created equal. Don't think for a second we are. We are, however, created in the image of God. Yes? We are all created for his glory and by him in a beautiful way. We just have this society, this way of thinking these are better, that's better than that, right? That's kind of how we've, we've done it. In God's eyes, he doesn't make any mistakes. It would have been better had the Declaration of Independence said something like that. Aristotle really hits it on the head. All are not. Now, that doesn't mean that some are born to be slaves. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, but if you go with evolution, folks, if you've ever bought into the idea of evolution, the survival of the fittest, you're a racist. There is no way to not be a racist if you believe in social, in Darwinism, social Darwinism. Survival of the fittest means only the strong survive and the rest are not created right. They are inferior to the rest. It is a purely racist way of thinking. In a day where that word is obviously overused, that's actually the, the, uh, the real definition of it. So Aristotle, the, the, the founders did not get what they believed based upon Aristotle, at least certainly not Thomas Jefferson. Aristotle continues, he says, and there are many kinds of rulers and subjects. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. Mm-hmm. I want to say that today. That's just not true. They may be different, but there's no way a male is superior to a female. And the man rules and the woman is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. The lower sort, we try using that language in our culture, are by nature slaves, and it is better for them, as for all inferiors, that they should be under the rule of a master. Indeed, the use of slaves and tame animals is not very different, for both, with their bodies, minister to the needs of life. It is clear, then, that some men are by nature free, and others slaves, and that for these latter, slavery is both expedient and right. Aristotle who is thought of as to be one of the greatest thinkers of all. He might have been a great thinker, but the way he thought wasn't necessarily what you and I think. It's not biblical, not what the prophets taught prior to him, but still reigned as, as one of the greats. Don't you think we should cancel this guy? Don't you think the world should cancel Aristotle? Plutarch, um, also uh, was in this case Roman, Aristotle was Greek, he speaks on slavery. Cato, speaking of the Roman philosopher around 200 B.C., possessed a large number of slaves whom he usually bought from among the prisoners captured in war. But it was his practice to choose those who, like puppies, were young enough to be trained and taught their duties. He never paid more than 1,500 drachmas for a slave since he was not looking for the exquisite or handsome type of domestic servant but for sturdy laborers. When they became too old or, or weak, to work, he felt it his duty 
to sell them rather than feed so many useless mouths. You see the attitude of this in here. For my part, Plutarch says, I regard his conduct toward his slaves in treating them like beasts of burden, exploiting them to the limits of their strength, and then, when they were very old, driving them off and selling them as a mark of a thoroughly ungenerous nature. Well, thank you, Plutarch. You're such a good guy. A kindly man will take good care of his, ho of his horses, even when they are worn out in his service, and will look after his dogs, not only when they are puppies, but when they, are need, when they need special attention in their old age. In other words, a good slave owner is not just going to sell them off, he's going to take care of them as he would his animals. Not bad, a little better idea. So the Greco-Roman society, a summary of what they believed, was that slavery was, slavery was a common facet of Roman society. Slaves were part of the family structure for Romans. In fact, it is estimated in the Roman world that over half the population was slaves. Over half. They all knew it. Most of them didn't know they were. But it, again, it wasn't pre-Civil War United States slavery. In fact, slaves in those days were doctors, tutors, lawyers. How about that? If they all knew there were that many slaves, there could have been a great slave uprising. Slaves were owned for life, like livestock was owned for life. They could be and were sold like livestock. Aristotle and others like him argued that some are born to be slaves. It is best for them if they remain such. So that's the, the Greco-Roman view. Like it or not, that's what they thought. A summary of the Bible is that the Old Testament allowed Jews to own slaves of other races for life, according to Leviticus 25. Being free is better than being a slave, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 7.20. In Christ, there's no distinction between slaves and others. So in Christ, there may be slaves and others, but in Christ, we're all one. The New Testament does not condemn slavery, but urges slaves to submit to their masters, and masters are commanded to be good to their slaves. Masters who are unjust will be judged severely. Slaves who suffer injustice will have a greater reward. So that's a summary of, of the, the context of slavery in the first century and what the Bible says about it dating back to 1400 B.C. when Moses put together the Pentateuch. So the abolition movement in the north... Uh, you know what an abolitionist is, someone who wants to free the world of slavery. Done right now. But there are other people that hated slavery, didn't want it gone. You need to understand, if you don't, maybe you already do, is that the abolitionists were the crazy ones. The crazy ones, it's got to end today, right now, slavery's over. Other people saw that that's going to be hazardous to the South and the rest of the country. Let's get in slavery, but let's end it slowly, little bit at a time. Others, let's ship Let's, let's free some slaves and ship them back to Africa and colonize them in Liberia and other places in Africa, their homeland. So there's differing opinions on how to do it. In the north, the abolition, abolitionists, uh, Quakers were actually the first to begin to agitate for the elimination of slavery in America. Others joined the crusade. Some, like Charles Finney, that's him on the left with the, the largest picture. They were Christians, or at least professed to be Christians. Uh, I, as I told you when we went through Finney, I do not think Charles Finney was a believer in Christ. Thought he was, but he, I don't think he was ever saved. Uh, others, like William Garrison, that's him in the bottom left, uh, did not hold evangelical views, but they were complete, total abolitionists. Others, like John Brown, were simply terrorists, and that's him in the top right. Um, by the way, if you're familiar with John Brown University, that's not who it's named after. This not this John Brown. And that poor university's having to tell, tell, tell people that for years. That's not the John Brown they're John E. Brown, a different one. Charles Finney says this, I made up my mind on the question of slavery and was exceedingly anxious to arouse public attention to the subject. In my prayers and in my preaching, I so often alluded to slavery and denounced it 
that a considerable excitement came to exist among the people. Christians can no more take neutral ground on this subject than they can take neutral ground on the subject of the sanctification of the Sabbath. That last part just drives me crazy. I would have said they can not take neutral ground on the subject of Christ being the only way of salvation. Uh, but the sanctification of the Sabbath, you see his view of the Sabbath is that you've got to, got to be there on the Sabbath. It's, got, it's this legalistic must worship on the Sabbath, blah, blah, blah. Folks, if you don't already know it, if you're in Christ... Every day of your life is a Sabbath. Sabbath is rest. It's a time of rest. We've rested from our works. We enjoy and, and uh, commemorate the Sabbath every day of our lives. We don't need one day a week to do that, do we? Well, this is Finney's idea, and he did. He preached quite prevalently and was a big, uh, made a big noise for anti-slavery movement, abolition in the North. Albert Barnes... Uh, died in 1807, he said, It is now impossible to convince the world that slavery is right, or is it in accordance with the will, or, or is in accordance with the will of God. No alleged authority of the Bible will satisfy men at large that the system is not always a violation of laws that God has stamped on the human soul. What then, in this state of things, will be the effect of teaching that slavery is authorized in the Bible? So you can see that he knows what the Bible teaches, but he's saying, look, that's not, it's not, pushing us to have slaves in this country the way we have them. He continues, There can be but one result of such views. It will be, so far as these are regarded as teachings of the Bible, to lead men to reject the Bible. In other words, he's saying, if we make people believe that it's okay to have slaves from the Bible, people are going to reject the Bible. Do you agree with that? I do. Men will say, if such are the teachings of the Bible, it is impossible that book should be a revelation given to mankind from the true God. So he's, they're concerned about this. You in the South are telling everybody it's okay from the Bible? It's not. The Bible says things about slavery, but it doesn't promote what we have in this country. What we had in this country. Barnes continues, nothing can be more certain than that man was formed by his maker for freedom. And that all men have a right to be free. Nothing more can be true than the declaration of the immortal instrument which asserts our national independence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life and liberty. Yes, amen. Absolutely. So Barnes's argument, bullet pointed here, since we all know, since we know that all men have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and we add the pursuit of happiness... We should cease from saying that the Bible condones slavery or that it does not condemn it. The Bible does not condemn slavery. But mind you, when we talk about slavery, according to the passages we looked at in the Bible, and pre-Civil War slavery in the United States, we're talking about an apple and an orange. They just don't go together. If we understood the Bible correctly, we would see that it condemns slavery. The Bible is silent on it because it's so understood that this is wrong. You don't steal another human being or think you're better than them because of the color of your skin. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible that teaches that abortion is wrong. Do we need teaching in the Bible that says abortion is wrong? Do we need a proof text? We know that God creates life and it is wrong for man to take a life. Hence, we don't need a bunch of passages on, on, by the way, in case you didn't get that, abortion's wrong. We, we don't need a proof text on that. So it's the same with, with slavery. And by the way, as I said last week, the argument that we have in the North and the South, had in the North and the South, pre-Civil War, 
about slavery is the exact same argument we have today with regard to abortion. They're irreconcilable. You realize that. They're irreconcilable. There's no one who believes in abortion. I say no one. There are people that are changing their minds about abortion. But in large measure, we are not convincing people that abortion is wrong, are we? In fact, we're making more people angry that want to say it's right. And they make us angry by saying it's okay, right? So that was the same thing going on with the Civil War, what was leading up to the Civil War with regard to slavery. If we insist that the Bible does not condemn slavery, then people will reject the Bible. This is just summarizing Barnes's argument. Elijah Lovejoy, speaking of abolitionists, he said, Abolitionists hold that all men are born free and equal, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They do not believe that these rights are abrogated or at all modified by the color of skin. That's good. They don't believe that. Abolitionists therefore hold American slavery to be wrong, a legalized system of inconceivable injustice and a sin against God. I would too. As the Bible indicates upon man, but one duty in respect to sin, and that is immediate repentance, abolitionists believe that all who hold slaves should immediately cease to do so. You know what happened to him? He was murdered. Age 35 as he sought to protect the abolitionist press. Uh, and that's what happens. You speak out. This was, you took your life in your own hand to speak out against this with people who thought that it was right. Most people who thought it was right were using the Bible, calling themselves Christians. Um, they, in fact, the Baptists, you remember when the Baptists came to the United States and they fought for their right to, to uh, their own personal faith and they were baptized and they were killed for such? Those Baptists were all one until slavery. The American Baptists went up north. The Southern Baptists went down south so that they could have slaves. Southern Baptists, how about that? William Lloyd Garrison, well, he was a fireball, printed an abolitionist paper called The Liberator, calling for immediate emancipation. Printed out, or pointed out to Americans, the hypocrisy of celebrating the 4th of July when they held captive slaves. Said that slaves should be freed and allowed to live in America, not colonized elsewhere, as non-abolitionists were suggesting. Garrison surmised what a declaration of independence of slaves might say. So if slaves were going to write their own independence statement, here's what they would say. They have invaded our territories. They did. Came to their continent and stole people. Forced them against their will. They have wedged us into the holds of their floating hells. You ever, got, you ever heard an account of what it was like for slaves on a, slave sh on a ship? If you ever see a, a, um, a truck, get behind a truck with a bunch of chickens in it, just imagine that that's how they treated slaves. They slid them into a, a narrow place. Just if you, like getting an MRI from the pictures I've seen. If you've ever sat in an MRI, you, you get claustrophobic. They're going to sail from Africa to the States like that. They have sold us in the marketplaces like cattle. They have driven us in large droves from state to state beneath the burning sky. They have lacerated our bodies with whips. Suppose that the slaves should suddenly become white, Garrison surmises. Would you shut your eyes upon their sufferings and calmly talk of constitutional limitations? Immediate unconditional emancipation without expatriation is the right of every slave and cannot be withheld by his master an hour without sin. Cannot withhold this. He is preaching to the South. You think they liked William Lloyd Garrison? 
concept of a Christian slaveholder, he said, is as much a contradiction as a religious atheist, a sober drunkard, or an honest thief. Oh, but all those down south were Christian slaveholders in their own mind. Garrison says it would be a damning sin. D-A-M-M-I-N-G. Good thing I spelled that right. For us to admit another slave state into the Union. Why is it, or if it would be a damning sin for us to admit another slave state into the Union. Why is it not a damning, I got that one right. Why is it not a damning sin to permit a slave state to remain in the Union? You see the hypocrisy. It's wrong to have another slave state, but it's not wrong to keep slave states. If a person is allied with 15 pickpockets, is it not the acme of effrontery to say that conscience requires the exclusion of a 16th from the league? That one you kind of have to think about, don't you? On this subject, I do not wish to think or speak or write with moderation. No, no. Tell a man whose house is on fire to give a moderate alarm, but urge me not to use moderation in a cause like the present. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be hurt. And he was. End slavery now. John Brown, kill them all. Ultra radical northerners like John Brown. And he looks like that type, doesn't he? He looks like, looks like our great grandfather. They were terrorists and sought to create a slave rebellion in the South. They kind of stir up all the slaves, rebel. Well, they all got slaughtered when it happened. Brown's raid on the armory at Harper's Ferry in Virginia in 1859 convinced many southerners that the North would stop at nothing to impose their will on the South. So the northern position summarized. Radical abolitionists said slavery was evil and therefore must be eliminated from the United States. More moderate voices recognized slavery as evil, wanting to contain it or eliminate it slowly. Others simply wanted to recolonize portions of Africa with slaves. I should say freed slaves. The Civil War actually began not over slavery, but over the fact that South Carolina seceded from the Union. Um, the, the states, although slavery, you could go back and forth. I mean, I was told as a kid um, it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. And then later on, no, it was about slavery. Um, we visited the, the, the East Coast, me and wife and the kids, and we went to museum after museum after museum. We saw all kinds of stuff, read all kinds. I learned a lot there. And, and it's about both. South Carolina seceded. We don't want the federal government to tell us what to do. Well, the federal government wouldn't be telling you what to do if you weren't living in immorality and enslaving people against their will. And so it was a can't tell us what to do. That's not the, con the Constitution wasn't set up to be a federal head and tell all the states what to do. We're all, we all have our rights. You can't tell us what to do. That's true. But what you're doing is wicked and evil. It ought not be. Abraham Lincoln did not declare the Emancipation Proclamation until halfway through the war in 1863, which began in 1861. So there's the position. Now, the southern position on slavery. Almost all southerners felt that each state which was their country, their state was their country, had the right to secede from the Union. Most would have said that that is what they were fighting for. They felt that the North did not honor the promises of the Constitution. Loose confederation of states under one federal head. Many Southern Christians felt that the Northern Christians were rejecting the Bible since it does not forbid slavery. So Southern Christians were thinking, we're, I mean, because I'm living in the South, not because I take this side I do not not even close but if you're in the south you're saying the north you're ignoring what the bible says most radical southerners said that the south was actually fighting for a high moral standard and that slavery was a good thing 
That's what people today argue with, with uh, abortion. It's a good thing. Especially not only is it the woman's right to choose, which sounds like a state's right, don't tell me what to do with my body. It's the same thing, isn't it? Don't tell us what to do with our state. Woman's right to choose, state's rights, slavery, abortion. Well, we don't tell women what to do with their bodies unless they're killing another human being within their body. We don't tell the states what to do unless they're doing something that is immoral. So it's the same thing, isn't it? R.L. Dabney on secession, he said, the infamous alternative has been forced upon her, talking about Virginia, either to brave the oppressor's rod or to aid him in the destruction of her sisters because they are contending, contending nobly, if too rashly, for the rights common to them and to her. The Constitution of the United States has been rent in fragments by the effort. Virginia cannot be condemned because in the, in the ordinance of 1788 in which she first accepted this Constitution, she expressly reserved to herself the right to sever its bonds whenever she judged they were used injuriously to her covenanted rights. In other words, Virginia says we will be part of the Union as long as our rights as a state are not infringed upon. And so they're they have every right to. That's what's in the Constitution. You can't tell us this. So you see the right and wrong of it. You can't tell the states what to do, but the states are doing something that is immoral, and it's part of the Union. So Virginia, South Carolina, they all have every right to secede. It's part of their, their charter. Frederick Ross says the most consistent abolitionists affirming the sin of slavery on the maxim of created equality and in an unalienable right, after torturing the Bible for a while to make it give the same testimony felt they could not get or they could get nothing from the book, these consistent men have now turned away from the word in despondency and are seeking somewhere an abolition Bible and an abolition God. And if you get anything from that, that's just that last phrase there. They don't like what the Bible says. They're trying to find a Bible that, that speaks to abolish it, but it's not in the Bible. He says, many others are trying in exactly the same way, just mentioned, to make the Bible speak against slaveholding. You proclaim that Paul, in Greek, must condemn slavery because it is a violation of the first sentiments of the Declaration of Independence. He says, many of your most pious men, soundest scholars, have been led to study the Bible more faithfully. They are reading it more and more in harmony with the views which have been reached by the highest southern minds to wit. That relation of master and slave is sanctioned by the Bible. That is, it is a relation belonging to the same category as those of husband and wife, parent and child. Huh. How about those Southerners? Folks, you can't just pick up the Bible, find a verse. I saw something the other day that said, I can do all things through Scripture taken out of context. <laughs> and you can't. Pick up a Bible, you can make it say anything you want out of context. And you can say, look, it's in the Bible. Find a verse on slavery, boom, there it is. Bible sanctions it. God must love it. It's okay for us in the South to do that. That's why expository preaching is essential. Expository preaching shows everything in its context. You put it in its context, it makes a whole different, whole bit, a large difference, I should say. Benjamin Palmer again says, In this great struggle, we defend the cause of God and religion. He's in the South. The abolition spirit is undeniably atheistic. <laughs> I don't know how he got that. The spirit of atheism, which knows no God, no Bible, which sanctions law, and no conscience that can be bound by oaths and covenants, has selected us for its victims and slavery for its issue. The South, to the South, the high position is a sign of defending before all the nations the cause of all religion and truth. In this trust, 
We are resisting the power which wars against constitutions and laws, against the family, the state, and the church, and rebukes the Most High for the errors of his administration. In other words, we are standing up against anyone who would set themselves against the Bible. Hey, I would too, but only given that I'm proving the truth from the Bible, not a topic that I've come together and said, look, it's in the Bible, therefore it's good and right. Alexander Stevens, you look at him, you go, I don't like him, right? It's a bad picture. Slavery is right, in Alexander Stevens' mind. The prevailing ideas entertained by Thomas Jefferson and most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old Constitution were that enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. Those ideas were, however, fundamentally wrong. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race in his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon the great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. That's a bunch of hogwash, isn't it? If we, if we can make the slaves less than human, uh, and if we can make that baby inside mama less than human, then killing it is nothing, right? So just a dog. Uh, this is Alexander Stevens. The new government, our new constitution in the South, it's right. Yeah, what he calls the old, the old constitution. Yeah. Yes, it does, but it's not what that means. It doesn't mean he's three-fifths of a man. It was about a voting thing. It was, it was about voting, wasn't it? Yeah. They did have the right. I'm not saying they did have the right. I'm not saying the moral. Absolutely. But the right. Yeah. So why did the Civil War occur? And what is the meaning of the war itself? Well, the North thought they were right. You know, kind of if you want to put this in the context of, of, of abortion, Christians think we're right. Of course, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians that think it's okay to, to slaughter babies in the womb. The North thought they were right. The North could argue correctly that the South had been guilty of a grossly immoral practice of ruthlessly enslaving men and women. Yes, that's right. They were right. They considered the North. The victory of the Northern armies was a vindication from God on their behalf. They figured that was God fighting for them. Northern reform movements was God's will for the whole nation. That's what they assumed. After the war, Northern missionaries invaded the South with what appeared to be Southerners to be the new and liberal ideas. Well, the South didn't like the North. And now that you've won the war, you're going to come down here and spread your liberal ideas? North and the South, they were conservative at least. The South thought they were right. South could argue correctly that they represented a truer commitment to the original covenants of the American states. They did. They were holding true to the state's rights, and they were right about that. They retained a time-honored conservative lifestyle. They were more faithful to a conservative interpretation of the Bible in spite of taking it out of context. Southerners had to ask, why then did God let them lose? They developed what historians now call lost cause mentality. God was chastening his people, the South, and preparing them for great new missions, at least in some sense. So he was right. A more balanced interpretation, my opinion, take it or leave it, both the North and the South have been guilty of heinous sins, from enslaving people against their wills to liberalizing God's word and will. The North, they were not saints. I mean, Charles Finney was their, their 
poster boy, and he didn't even believe that Jesus was the way, truth, and the life. He didn't even believe that the atonement of him, of Christ on the cross, was salvific, uh, but he was their poster boy. Uh, both were guilty of heinous sins. The war was a judgment of the whole country for their sins. Dwight Moody and Abraham Lincoln both enunciated this view. Moody says this, Nations are only collections of individuals, and what is true of the part in regard to the character is always true of the whole. In this country, our forefathers planted slavery in the face of an open Bible, and didn't we have to reap? Moody continues, When the harvest came, nearly half a million of our young men were buried, many of them in a nameless grave, and every household almost had an empty chair, and blood, blood, blood flowed like water for four long years. Ah, our nation sowed, and how in tears and groans she had to reap. Uh, there was no one that was right. Um, they were all wrong. God's, we always want to think that God is with us and God's blessed us because we won. No, no, no one won that war. Um, and, and I'll tell you, folks, we're headed for the same war because it's the same, it's idealistic worldview of, of people, what people are, how people are to be treated, how the unborn are to be treated. In the case of the black man stolen from his country, how these defenseless folks were treated and, and brutalized as just property, cattle. Lincoln said, in great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be, wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. I am almost ready to say that this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it shall not end yet. He says, the Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses. It must needs be that offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offenses come. That's a quote from Jesus. If we shall oppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, and that he gives both the North and the South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offenses came, shall we discern any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? I mean, aside from this, have you ever seen a quote that Joe Biden said that even approaches such beauty? He loses his thought halfway through the first sentence. Sorry, had to get that in. Forgive me. Lincoln continues, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So you see Lincoln going back, looking back and saying, I'm not sure anyone was right. We just know that that was wrong. And God's judgments are on the whole country for his own reasons. We're coming to an end. We'll look at the slave religion and what happened after this and how it spread out. You see the evolution of African-American churches. You see the timeline there. Uh, the neglect of slave religion prior to the 1800s. Mostly biracial churches, 1800 through the end of the Civil War. Biracial churches. In other words, slaves went to church with their, their, their slave owners in the South. There was a voluntary segregation after the war. Okay, we're free. They weren't equal. Slaves were freed, but they were not equal, were they? Uh, but they were, each one said, you go to your church, we'll go to our church. And then forced segregation 
um, you know, 1900 and beyond, the late 19th century, you've got uh, forced segregation. Uh, Frederick Douglass described the biracial church setting. He says this, I stand here a slave. In the eyes of the Constitution, it is a slave by the laws of the South who now address you. What a mockery of his religion is preached in the South. I have been called upon to describe the style in which it is set forth, and I find our ministers there learn to do it in the northern colleges. I used to know they went, they went, they went away somewhere, and they came back ministers, and this is the way they would preach. They would tell, tell a text, say this, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And this is the way they would apply it. They would explain it to mean slaveholders do unto other slaveholders what you would have them do unto you. And then looking imp imp impudently upon the slave's gallery, for they have a place set apart for us, though it is said to have no prejudice, just as it is done here up in the northern churches, looking up to the poor colored drivers and the rest and spreading his hands gracefully abroad, he says, and you too, my friends. So you get the picture. He's looking up the preacher and he looks up at the blacks and the... And the where they've been banished to the balcony. And you too, my friends, have souls of infinite value. Souls that will live through endless happiness or misery in eternity. All of this is said in sarcasm by Frederick Douglass. Oh, labor diligently to make your calling and election sure. Servants, be obedient to your masters. Oh, consider the wonderful goodness of God. Look at your hardened hands, your strong muscular frames, and see how mercifully he has adapted you to the duties you are to fulfill. While your masters, who have slender frames and long, delicate fingers, he has given to the brilliant, he has given the brilliant intellects that you may do the thinking, while they that they may do the thinking while you do the working. So imagine me, you know, one day I'm preaching and I'm saying, okay, my friends, all my white friends, and then I look out at a section where the blacks are included. You too, folks. What well, is a little aside for you? You do this, and you just make sure that you respect these people over here. How condescending, how unchristian. Frederick Douglass is nailing this. This man was amazing. Uh, it was always wrong, still wrong. So the evaluation of biracial worship, Frederick Douglass' description is surely accurate for a large part of the biracial churches in the South. Yet many slaves must have found more meaning in it than that. Many of them came to know Christ in those churches. Most slaves attended voluntarily with their masters. After the war, they continued to worship in their own churches. It's not like they, they could have said, you know, if that's who your God is and your God's okay to enslave people, we don't want anything to do with your God. But they came to know Christ. Something, a great benefit, if there's any benefit to what happened to them, is that they were brought here to hear about Jesus. Some Sunday gatherings were the only time in a slave's life when they could gather with other slaves from other plantations. Slaves had more rights in the church than any other facet of their society. In biracial churches, church courts, slaves could actually testify against whites. So Richard Allen in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, any of you familiar with this, the AME Church? Uh, Richard Allen says, even before the Civil War, Richard Allen, a free African-American Methodist pastor, formed an independent African congregation in Maryland. This grew into the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME. AME is still a large African-American denomination. Freed slaves will withdraw to form their own independent congregations after this. And this brings us to the Missionary Baptist. Last slide. Uh, you know Missionary Baptists today, typically uh, black churches. By far the largest segment of slave Christianity was Baptist. Why? Because people in the South were Baptists. Many biracial Baptist churches in the South had three-quarters of their membership from the slave community. And after the Civil War, these freed slaves withdrew to form their own independent congregations. 
The missionary Baptist denomination grew out of this separation and quickly became the largest African-American denomination. So in our study of church history, we had to go through that horrible bump in the road. And as we see the evolution of the church, how it's changing, it was once Catholic, then it became split with the Protestants. You've got Lutherans, Calvinists, you've got Reformed uh, and all the, the offshoots of it. You've got the church in England. The Baptists come out of it. Out of the Baptists, you've got other uh, sects that come along. And then you've got, now in the, from the Civil War, you've got the black church and their view of it and how they view the Bible based upon how they were treated. History of the church can't miss the Civil War. It is sad. It's sobering. That's why it was good to be here last week because last week was the encouraging week of the missionary movement. But folks, we're still getting in. We're moving into modern movements. So it's getting... getting uh, more and more streamlined, we get into the modern American church. Let's close. Father, I pray for the United States of America. We live in a place where it is highly divided. Your word says that we are to pray for those in authority. And so I pray. I pray for those in authority. I pray for, for Joe Biden. I pray for those who would who run for president and be president. Um, that whether they acknowledge that they love you and serve Christ, that you would... would uh, overwhelm them, that they would lead as you would have them lead. I pray you protect your people. I pray for the, for the safety of Israel, your people. Lord, you have never let people conquer your people without having a, a, a reason for it. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which I think in the Bible means that day when Jesus will touch down, where there will be eternal peace. We pray for that day. Send your kingdom. And as we await your kingdom, we pray for your justice. We pray for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Thank you.